HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to HEC Breakthroughs, your monthly podcast by the Knowledge at HEC team. We hope you enjoyed a relaxing summer break. Just a reminder that Breakthroughs highlight some of the best research coming out of our business school, as well as its impact on society at large. I'm Daniel Brown, the school's head of research communication. This month, we turn our attention to a field which has been dominating debate these past months. That's cryptocurrency. The reason? Well, the demise of FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. The cryptocurrency mogul remains behind bars as we record this. Much of SBF's wheelings and dealings can be linked to questionable accounting practices. And this is right up the alley of our Breakthrough's guest, as shown by a paper he recently published. You're about to find out more on blockchain accounting from this man in the next half hour. Hello, my name is Dane Fluger. I'm an assistant professor at HEC in the accounting department. Uh, my research investigates different management control practices in a variety of different organizational settings, from hospitals to, to markets. To understand blockchain, you can think of a rock climber scaling the side of a mountain. Each move they make is meticulously calculated. And before they stick their next pick into the side of the mountain, their entire being is working to solve their move. As data is added onto the blockchain, it can then be aggregated to form a traceable ledger that is autonomous, unchangeable, and practically impenetrable from cyber threats. Dane Pfluger, you just published this 27-page uh, paper in Europe's top accounting review, called the European Accounting Review, on blockchain accounting, where you look at the relationship with governance, organization, and trust. Co-written by Martin Kornberger and uh, Jan Moritzen. First of all, how long have you been collaborating, the three of you? Yeah, we've worked together for probably about 10 years, to, to be honest. Um, this is actually, was originally a follow-up paper to, to our last more conceptual paper on platform organizations, where we studied type of organizational form and modes of control, you know, in platforms like Air, Airbnb and Uber. So what drew you to uh, exploring this kind of blockchain accounting in the first place? Yeah, so we were looking for more of an empirical setting to study platforms. And this is five years ago or six years ago now. And as we started looking around, we were we found a couple people using blockchain and saying things like, well, we're Uber without Uber or we're Airbnb without Airbnb. This idea that you could have a platform organization without an owner. Um, and that, that interested us. And that's what got us started exploring what exactly these claims were and Good what they morning, like. George. And that Bahamas judge denying Sam Bankman-Fried bail, the former poster child for transparency in crypto, considered a heightened flight risk. This morning, the founder of FTX, one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world, waking up behind bars in the Bahamas, charged in a scheme that investigators say stole billions of dollars from customers and investors. This is one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. Sam Five, six years ago, there wasn't this FTX affair that's put a spotlight on blockchains and bitcoins. How does your research give a bit of a spotlight on 
uh, what happened with this scandal. The biggest parallel that I've found between FTX and our work is that in our work, we, we emphasize what we call the off-chain work involved in blockchains. What we mean by that is um, all of the forms of communication and coordination that need to happen for the technical activities of the blockchain to function in the off-chain world. So with FTX, you know, we need a lot of exchanges, ancillary services, wallet holders. You need all sorts of people to come together to make the technical functioning of, of Bitcoin or any other coin work. And all of these services exist off-chain. They exist in the real world. And as such, they're susceptible to all the same real-world problems that blockchain often claims to be solving. So we have relatively unsophisticated and predictable types of financial frauds happening in a space that often claims to not rely on on people and to overcome these types of human problems. But I think what our research emphasizes is that all the messy real-world problems exist in blockchain just around it and, and at, at the edges. So that's, I think, <laughs> kind of predictable from our, from our research. Unfortunately, you know, uh, probably a lot of people found out the hard way. Dane, let's take a little step back. Um, it's said that the blockchain exists uh, as a novel and foundational accounting uh, technique and technology. For you, what does that mean? It, we're intrigued by this claim that we often find. So as accountants and in the accounting profession, the idea that blockchain is accounting is easy to dismiss, right? That's some other thing that's happening elsewhere. But if you pick up any major book on blockchain, it often opens with the premise, blockchain is a new form of accounting, or blockchain is a foundational accounting technology, or it's a new way of recording financial transactions. You know, the claim, and they even cite some of the literature in accounting that gives a long history of accounting, um, or, or, you know, early changes in, in capitalism and says, well, this is a new form of capitalism, a new form of organization, a new accounting system. And so we're, that's kind of the, the premise of our research is to say, okay, well, maybe we should take this claim seriously or at least try to understand what this claim in practice entails. And that's kind of what we study. The accounting profession has continued to stand the test of time as a way to protect investors of a company. After learning in school and on the job that there was no possible way to assess all information of a company that goes into their financial statements, I set out to find an alternative using an emerging technology called blockchain. When data is being added to the blockchain, a network of miners is working to solve a complex, rigorous equation to encrypt data onto the chain. The entire network works to solve this equation, and after solving it, moves to the next. After execution, the contract is then recorded on the blockchain without any ability for human interaction once the contract is set in motion. Now, seeing the promise of these two technologies, many companies have taken to developing applications for their operations, such as tracking inventory or the exchange of money for goods and services. But rather than tracking tangible items, what if blockchain technology could be used to help maintain accountability for the financial information that companies are providing to investors? Enron and WorldCom 
are two companies alone that caused Jacob Luton, an American accountant who's written on blockchains as a way to improve financial reporting, emphasizing the point you made earlier that there are a lot of people who are making this claim. Your response, Dane Pluger. This is a kind of common refrain that, that you hear around blockchain accounting which is that it either radically helps or hinders the ability of the accounting profession to do what are today understood to be its core tasks of audit, transaction verification, etc. And on the one hand, we think this is a fairly kind of limited way to think about blockchain because it assumes that what accounting is remains the same. But if you look at the history of accounting, what you see is that the, the boundaries and even the center of what constitutes accounting's core tasks have radically changed, and they continue to change with new technologies. As an example, there wasn't cost accounting for many years, not as it exists today. You know, there, there wasn't the idea that you could define standard costs and measure variance against budget until the 60s and 70s. And now those things are, are so taken for granted, you know, that they're chapters one through three of the textbook and never really changed. So we think it's a little bit foolish to assume that a new technology is going to come and the core tasks of accounting are going to remain the same. So that, that's one thing. I think the other thing that we learn after having done the research is blockchain evangelists, perhaps like, like this person, I'm not sure, but they sometimes tend to specify the, the main problem of accounting being one of the security of the spreadsheet, you know, in, in simple terms. So at WorldCom and Enron, in my opinion, weren't issues of people in power hacking the spreadsheet. In fact, they were examples of people in power making judgments and using the big space of discretion that exists in all financial accounting to make relatively dubious choices. And it's not that there is ever a clearly right or clearly wrong answer in financial accounting. I mean, this is why we have the, the accounting profession. Usually there's going to be a series of judgments, you know, were these acquisitions capital or expenses? And blockchain might make the spreadsheet more secure, but it doesn't resolve the possibility of needing to make complex judgments and even relying on people or processes to do it. Now, of course, you know, those people could be a little more trustworthy than, than Bernie Ebers, but, you know, at the same time, Bernie Evers, uh, the founder of WorldCom. Yeah, or the CEO at the time, yeah, who committed some of these accounting frauds. Yeah, so, so judgment's still required. And I think that to some degree, we need to specify that judgment will continue to be required in a blockchain accounting world. HEC Breakthroughs, a knowledge at HEC podcast. So the other challenge that we have is how to study a technology. And it sounds relatively simple, you know, but if you think about the question you know, how did computers change accounting? It's very hard to specify where the technology begins and ends, right? You could think of storing of records, obviously, is now stored on, on the hard drive or in the cloud. But you then start thinking, well, with the computer comes new forms of communication, new office layouts, you know, and you, you new ideas about what a good accountant would be or what a good employee is. And so with blockchain, I think we're somehow trying to say, okay, there's this technology that has some, some physical attributes, some technological attributes, but it's also a set of imaginaries, as we call them, a set of beliefs about what's possible and trying to kind of study both, study the technology as not only something that has technological constraints and limitations, but also something that has constraints and limitations in the types of imaginaries it proposes was our challenge and something we tried to overcome. So what, what were the samples that you chose? 
I think we date the kind of popular emergence of blockchain to Nakamoto's and, and the blockchain, and sorry, and Bitcoin. And so to understand the imaginaries, what we take are these key foundational texts called white papers. And white papers are, are a new, you know, are so important to, to all public blockchain projects because they're the kind of charter and they're the thing that interests people and starts people collaborating. It kickstarts what it should come. In a way, they're like little mini constitutions, you know, even if they're updated and things like that. And so where else could we look to see these, you know, what the imaginaries are than, than these constitutions, that, you know? So how do you deconstruct them or approach them? Yeah, I mean, fairly conventional type of qualitative analysis, you know. Um, look, we have these three themes uh, from the from the history of, of accounting, you know, governance, trust, and, and organization, and we can code that way. And we also do more kind of abductive coding where we not only kind of look for when those themes are invoked, but also find new themes that are invoked or sub-themes that are invoked and start coding that way. And then that allows us to drive new concepts to work with. And what you find is that all Bitcoins have a hierarchy. And uh, this uh, is exacerbated, this kind of leadership in times of crisis. And that's when you say that there is a need of leadership and trust. Could you elaborate on that? We're in a time of crisis after all. Yeah, I mean, so in a way, blockchains are on one hand a, a reaction to crisis, you know, when we um, have doubts about our traditional intermediaries. So the promise of Bitcoin, uh, sorry, and blockchain more generally is often the idea that we no longer need to rely on traditional human in particular intermediaries. So the promise of Bitcoin was, you know, a currency without the meddling central bank. The promise of Ethereum or, you know, all these different projects is that we no longer have middlemen. We no longer have accountants even. And there's no one person no, no infallible human that, that's capable of making bad choices, being corrupted by power, et cetera. And on, on one level, you know, that's true. When If you wanted to change Bitcoin, you couldn't do it unilaterally. But at the same time, all these projects, they, they aspire to enable all of the possible future changes to happen, what we call on-chain or through the pre-programmed protocol. But that never escapes the need for upgrades, the need for fixes. You know, one example is mining, right? And we know that that consumes huge amounts of energy. Could you explain to the listener what uh, mining is? Well, okay, mining is, is one piece of the backbone of blockchain in which there's a computational race to solve a complex mathematical problem by, by, by requiring people to spend money to verify things, it makes it more possible that the thing that's verified is true. Okay, so it's part of their what they call consensus mechanism, you know, a way of ensuring that what gets on the blockchain is what's truthful. And, you know, is a, is a genius solution that, that was come up with. But as a result, we have many, many, many computers being dedicated towards solving these mathematical problems in, in order to get paid, basically, through Bitcoin. And so you'll have huge, what we call mining pools, you know, hangers full of specialized software and computers and hardware. It's just running full speed and using, you know, huge amounts of energy. And, you know, but this is something that people want to solve. And other, other blockchain programs have gotten together and gotten everyone who's interested in, in the future of that coin or the future of that project and convinced them to upgrade and change and modify the essential kind of infrastructure. So changes need to happen all the time. 
to get those changes to happen, you need consensus. You need people to lead this charge. You need to get miners in China and developers in Asia and all sorts of other people um, together to, to agree. And to do that, you end up relying on all these forms of, of governance, all these forms of leadership that involve those fallible human intermediaries. All right, so now we have seen blockchain, we have seen cryptocurrency, now we can go to our next important concept. HEC Finance Professor Bruno Biet, during an online masterclass in January of this year, Bier describes the off-chain realities that the presumed developer of Bitcoin and its white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto, did not seem to fully take into account. And that's a concept which maybe has not been emphasized enough by the press or the public debate. We want to be very, very aware of the huge difference there is between things that are on-chain and things that are off-chain. The things that are on-chain are things which are registered on the blockchain. So the ownership of ethers is registered on the blockchain. That's on-chain. The transactions, the change of ownership of ethers is going to happen on the chain. Things which are off-chain is things which are not registered on the blockchain. What kind of thing? Well, cars, houses, dollars, euros. The ownership of those things is not registered on the blockchain. So when you want to trade those things, if you want to pay someone with dollars, you're not going to use the blockchain to do that. You're going to use the other infrastructure. You're going to use the banking system, the payment cards and all that. And so now, what is off-chain is subject to the same problem that Nakamoto was talking about in 2007. It involves institutions to be trust institutions. And so the in terms of uh, this analysis, you, there is the, these on-chain and off-chain forms of governance, um, and off-chain being leadership, hierarchy, and trust. Uh, how do the two coexist in terms of uh, yeah, the blockchains and, and its expression through Bitcoin? Yeah, so in a way, I mean, I think of the on-chain governance as the rules of the game, you know. I guess like in any organization, right, you have some rules that you set out in a constitution or you know, in the NBA and the players' rules or whatever, you know, the team rules. And then people work within that system. As long as that system is appropriately specified, you're going to get the types of outcomes that you want. And the idea in most blockchain projects is that we just set the rules right, and then it runs forever without us. It shouldn't be even possible for anyone to amend it. But what we found is that you can never just set the rules right. I mean, like the NBA, you know, they come to find that there's new ways of slowing down play and they need to amend the charter, you know, like the Constitution. They've learned that, you know, what worked <laughs> at the early days of the country's founding don't work, to, you know, and, and there's been ways of changing it. Off-chain governance is the stuff that there aren't rules for that in the code. The code doesn't specify a rule for changing its underlying structure. That requires a kind of political consensus, a social consensus. So specifically, if you want to change blockchain, you need to get most people in the system to agree to that change. And that's really difficult to do. That's the kind of off-chain aspect of on-chain work that we find to be really important, particularly in times of crisis, particularly when there's competition you know, between coins or when something breaks. 
I mean, a really interesting example about this was an experiment called the DAO, D-A-O. We could think of it as any other type of blockchain-based project. So it stands for a Decentralized Autonomous Organization. It's essentially an investment fund managed entirely through the consensus algorithm that they have, a charter that programs everyone's role and allocates rewards for everyone doing different things and says, okay, we outline these rules and we let people play and seek reward and we're going to get an organization that operates without middlemen. Now, what's interesting is that someone, the conventional wisdom is that someone hacked into the system and stole the funds, but actually they just, they use the rules to take all the funds. And that clearly violates the spirit of the project, but it's 100% within the rules. Now, you know, the people who controlled that platform and controlled Ethereum, they had the question of whether they should intervene, right? This is what they said they wouldn't do. This is actually what they said no one could do. But of course, they found ways to do it, you know, so they ended up shutting down the program, giving back the funds. So the offline world that they said shouldn't matter mattered. And no blockchain has been able to escape the need, you know, the possibility for these events to occur that require off-chain work. There are several ways to trade cryptocurrencies. HEC Professor of Finance Bruno Bier again. This is from his online masterclass on January the 19th, 2023. But maybe two important ways of trading cryptocurrencies is you can either trade them on-chain or you can trade them off-chain. If you trade the cryptocurrency on-chain, it means that the ownership of what you buy and the ownership of what you sell are both going to be registered on the blockchain. So this is something you can do on a decentralized exchange, which is something called a smart contract that will help you sell your Bitcoin or your Ether for another cryptocurrency that is also traded on the blockchain. But if you want to trade your Bitcoin or your Ether against something that is not registered on the blockchain, like the dollar, this cannot take place on chain. Dane Pfluger, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump, and, and that's in a way leads me to one of the conclusions that you make, that uh, the blockchain's political ambiguity swings from consolidating a neoliberal agenda to a revolutionary dream of freedom. So you're actually linking this to huge philosophical reflections. Yeah, I think that's what stands out when you start looking at the imaginaries, particularly in detail, you know, or the crystallizations. On the one hand, it will be said that we're inventing a direct peer-to-peer -peer form of collective action without middlemen, you know, and that sounds a lot like a social movement. You know, this is a, a very progressive thing. You know, on the other hand, the mechanism for doing that is to pay people. The mechanism to get people to collaborate is to specify the reward in terms of how the token's allocated, you know, which feels like a very, you know, we used to think that the pay for performance is coercion, you know, <laughs> or, or we, we tend to think of it that way. And we, we also think of it as, you know, taking control, taking back control from, from the intermediaries. At the same time, we're creating what's supposed to be an unstoppably intermediary, a system of rules that we create, but we can't control, you know, we, we can never amend. And so this idea that there's this impermeability to something is, is a one hand a form of freedom. On the other hand, it's, it seems like a form of radical control. So, mm -hmm. so this is what we mean here, you know, the way that it blends all these different ideals and, and realizes them to different degrees is, is pretty extraordinary. Still, you do point out the importance of blockchain for accounting, that it far exceeds a simple existing tasks and functions. You know, there's a French proverb that you throw out the baby with the bathwater. You're not throwing out blockchain accounting or its potential or what it's done to accounting. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. What I would say is that, you know, once you understand that blockchain is going to require both on-chain and off-chain work, I think it shows that the greatest opportunity for, for the accounting profession is to contribute to this off-chain work. We need this because we need intermediaries to work out an appropriate course of action, you know, when things become complicated, <laughs> when things fail, or when judgment's required. And in fact, perhaps the greatest asset of the accounting profession, the, the greatest its selling point, is that it can be relied upon to make complex judgments, presumably without too little oversight. I mean, we, we require them to tell us whether a company's depreciation policy is appropriate or whether its level of write-offs are appropriate. You know, all these spaces of gray that exist in financial accounting is exactly where financial accountants' accounting profession thrives. Auditing is, is required. And so in a way, we see the, a huge space, the, the best opportunity for the accounting profession in the blockchain world is to provide an, that judgment. Now, the kind of conflict that we identify is that, you know, this area of making complex judgments is not something that the accounting profession is very happy to, to talk about. There's a series of research that, you know, that shows the accounting profession moved away from judgment towards the use of data and, you know, other things that didn't eliminate judgment. It just kind of placed it a little bit underneath the surface. So we tend to think of accounting, you know, less as an art today than we did in, in the past, at least explicitly. But nonetheless, if it was not to some degree an art, we wouldn't need the accounting profession. You know, we could have computers do it. So, so the accounting profession would be, in order to operate in the space, is going to need to sell and market and be upfront about what it provides, which is judgment. And at the end, you, you do go further. You say that blockchain technology uh, does have positive economic rationality that can bypass the messiness of politics. And you've explained it very well. But it does pose a threat because it devalues the past experiences. And your research tries to encourage the exploration of more productive crystallizations. Can you uh, explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think when you really critically evaluate much of blockchain's imaginaries, well, and its crystals, when you, when you look at what Bitcoin entails, for instance, or what the blockchain to date entails, it's a significant development that nonetheless contains a lot of naivete about what's possible. I mean, the idea of algorithmic management, you know, management devoid of human judgment, you know, has been around for a long time and usually as a warning rather than as a goal. At the same time, of course, there's reasons why people don't trust traditional intermediaries. Like we probably do you know, want to find ways to challenge people of authority and to question their domains of expertise. And I think right now the early chapters of blockchain are probably you know, not embracing the complexity of, of these two lines of thought. It's probably too far towards the naive way of thinking in a way that doesn't really learn from what, we know, what we've learned in the past about power, control, things like that. And I wouldn't say that that's not happening. You know, when I go talk to technologists today, it's certainly a much more advanced and complicated conversation about governance, about autonomous decision making, things like that, than it was in the past. And I guess you see this with AI governance and all those things as well. The conversation is developing, and this is just supposed to be a way of, of helping everyone to develop that conversation. HEC Breakthroughs. A knowledge at HEC Podcast. You've written this paper, What is Blockchain Accounting? It's been accepted in this top A review in Europe. 
as an accountant researcher for more than a decade, how are people responding? Is that a sign that you're not in a minority about challenging a lot of fundamental pillars on which accounting traditionally is being um, rooted in? You know, I, I think what's interesting is if you look at the, the published work on blockchain and accounting, you know, it's mostly papers that question the possible future development of blockchain. Like, could blockchain enable real-time auditing? You know, and what would it look like? And those are all important debates. But what we're trying to do is to actually say, if we think differently about accounting, we can see this blockchain accounting already happening, right? We already have, in Bitcoin, a giant public ledger that records the movement of transactions between between wallets. And it does it without accountants. It does it without auditors. You know, it doesn't mean it does it without people, right? There's a million people involved and, you know, without leaders, without centralized power, all that stuff exists, but it's happening already. And so I guess our challenge to the accounting profession is to say, do you want to be part of that form of accounting? Or do we want to wait and see if and how and whether Bitcoin can become a kind of ancillary development for the accounting profession to do its existing job. But the thing is, if projects like Bitcoin succeed, it is fundamentally challenging what accountants do. Bitcoin already operates completely without auditors. On the other hand, there is a lot of stuff that looks a little bit like audit, you know, when they go in and or even software audits that happen, stuff like that. This could be a space where accounting accountants step in. Whether they're ready to do it or not, we'll see. I'm lucky to be an accounting academic rather than an accounting uh, sure. practitioner. But, uh, but yeah, I think this is the kind of questions we're throwing their way. And reminding them that uh, they have this ability to make these leadership decisions, the tough ones, that they seem to be kind of pushing away in a way. There's a kind of irony in a way. These off-chain realities in the blockchain need your competence mm -hmm. And somehow they're they're not accepting that invitation. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if it was IBM or Accenture, but I think it was Accenture that were branded as as doing the replays at tennis matches. You know, so they would brand themselves as good referees, and I think that's what we think people like the Big Four are are good at. And they might extend their business lines into refereeing or into these other things. And I think Bitcoin is and blockchain is another area that would need these types of referees. But what they would need to say is, we're good at making judgments rather than we're good at measuring things. Because that's, of course, what blockchain does without them. But I've, I've seen, on the one hand, you can see some projects kind of attempting to, to do that. Can you give an illustration of a project that's promising or that illustrates this idea where governance is at the heart because it establishes both trust and then the organization around it and they play off each other? Yeah. One example that comes to mind is like MakerDAO and DAOstack and some of these more recent projects that really talk a lot about governance. And they really try to specify through a series of tokens, the basic building blocks, things like a reputation token, a trust token, and, and you know, all of these different types of tokens that would allow all that stuff that is relied upon off-chain to be reinvented in a more meritocratic way on-chain. But my hunch is we'll never be able to, to escape the need for these changes. In a way, you can think about it, you know, you see someone like Donald Trump who challenges all of the social norms, you know, that all of those rules of, of the Constitution kind of were challenged by. And it's a constitutional crisis, some say, right? That, you know, the question is, can the Constitution handle this? Or can we have external social mechanisms that are willing to step in and, and intervene? And it's a similar kind of dynamic, I think, in, in a lot of blockchain projects. 
it needs more research and you're actually inviting uh, researchers in accounting and technologists uh, to take this a few steps further. What about your own uh, research at the moment, Dane Pfluger? Yes, I would say, just to show the kind of diversity that a lot of professors probably have here. I mean, I'm working on on one thing that's, that's totally unrelated. It's it's about the question of what venture capital analysts do with accounting information. The reason being that it's just an empirical paradox, which is that venture capitalists, particularly in the time of data collection, would invest huge amounts of money in collecting accounting data. And at the same time, they would report never for one minute believing anything about the accounting data. And so our question in that paper with Jan Moritz, another co-author on this paper, is just to ask what the heck they're doing with it. And, and that's what I've been spending most of my time with. And how far are you in, in this research uh, soon to publish? You can never count your eggs before they hatch or something. But uh, yeah, we're, we're resubmitting soon also to European Accounting Review. So hopefully I'll be able to tell you about that <laughs> in not too long, but you never know. Dane Fluger, thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. And that paper is all the more important as investors with strong accounting backgrounds use a company's financial reports to identify key risk areas. Well, we'll be sure to invite HEC Assistant Professor Dane Fluger to discuss his research on the topic as soon as his paper is published. Well, that's it for this first podcast of the 2023 academic year. To get insights into HEC's other research, why not subscribe to our monthly knowledge newsletter? There you can enjoy news analysis from our faculty members as they explore the impact their research is having on social, economic and societal issues that touch us all. Oh, and if you have any comments or questions, do feel free to drop them off at brownd at hec.fr. That's brownd in one word at hec.fr. Until next time, goodbye.